Genesis 21, 8 through 34. For the sake of context, I would just note that God has already now fulfilled that promise in giving Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, whose name means laughter, at 30 years, 25 to 30 years after he first called Abraham. That's a long journey of faith. Abraham's been dwelling in tents. He has stumbled along the way, and yet God has been strengthening him in faith with his promises. God has been restoring Abraham. He has been guiding Abraham. He has been protecting Abraham. He has been vouchsafing his promises and his pledges of the eternal inheritance to Abraham. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, Abraham was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, now here with Isaac as a baby, moving around in the land of promise, not knowing where he was going, but hoping in the everlasting reward, the eternal inheritance, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11, drawing that out for us. And now we see uh, as God has fulfilled his promise in part in bringing forth the son of promise, Isaac, who is a type of Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of Abraham, We now read in verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day after Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off at the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, up. Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and The commander of his army said to Abraham, go with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing to you. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until this day. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men 
made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Fecal, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. I think it becomes very apparent as we are looking at this account of Abraham, that God is always bringing about recurring events in the life of Abraham. He is always, in a sense, recapitulating things that happened to Abraham earlier in order to teach Abraham future lessons. And everything that's happening to Abraham in the Abrahamic narrative centers on God fulfilling his promises, on God bringing his city here to earth, the city of God, establishing his church, gathering together a visible community of those who will believe and worship and trust him, that he is raising up enmity against the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, and he is promising that he is going to bring the Redeemer, the son of Abraham, into the world. And everything that is happening to Abraham at every point and at every turn centers on God fulfilling his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. And just as Abraham is experiencing all these diverse experiences and as he is having all these different interactions and he's having all these trials and challenges and failings and restorations, God is constantly teaching him about those two kingdoms, those two cities, those two lines, those who will reject the covenant promises of Redeemer and those who will receive them by grace. Now, what's interesting as we come to the point here in the Abrahamic narrative where we have seen that God has finally begun to fulfill his promise in giving Isaac is that there is a conflict. There is a conflict already. Isaac is maybe one year old, maybe two years old, maybe three years old. He's very young. He's being weaned. He's having a birthday. Abraham celebrating and throwing his son, the son of promise, a big feast and a festival. And we see no sooner does Abraham begin to do this, there is conflict. There is an old sin and there is an old son that is coming back to the forefront. Now, before we go in and look at that in detail this morning, it would be helpful for you to understand that I am trying to weave together the rest of Genesis 21 because I think you have two contrasts. You have Ishmael rejecting the covenant promises and the grace of God, and you have Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, with whom Abraham just had interaction, receiving the blessings of Abraham and and entering into into a pact and a covenant with him, thereby showing that he is receiving the one to whom God has sent the promises. You have the rejection of grace, and you have the reception of grace. Very interesting that The account with Abimelech follows hard on the heels of the account of Abraham, Isaac, and the casting out of Ishmael. 
Now, as we consider the rejection, we consider what is God doing again, as I already said here this morning, God is teaching Abraham that there is only one seed, one line through whom the Redeemer will come, that God will only bring it about by way of promise. Remember, we have noted when we looked back in Genesis chapter 16 at that initial account of Abraham and Hagar, that Abraham took to himself the Egyptian handmaiden at the advice of Sarah, who then bore to him Ishmael, who was, in a very real sense, a a symbol of human fleshly wisdom trying to take eternal salvation into one's own hands. It is Abraham acting in the flesh. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 is going to make a huge deal out of this. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us that there were two mothers, Sarah and Hagar. There are two sons. I want to encourage you to go back and read Galatians chapter 4. I'll I'll do it for you this morning, but I want to encourage you to read and to know that important section of Scripture. And yet, uh, the Apostle Paul there draws out that great, what he calls an allegory. Notice this, that as he is writing to... Uh, believing people who are tempted to go back to legalism for their salvation, who are being led astray to think that they need Jesus and they need to keep the law to be saved, that Christ is not sufficient as a savior, but that you must go back under the Judaic laws, circumcision, the dietary laws, even the moral law, the what Paul will call the works of the law. And as they are being led astray by these Judaizers who are saying to be saved, you need Christ plus law-keeping, The Apostle Paul now says this using the Hagar-Sarah allegory. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Paul is saying that the Jews of Jesus' day had rejected the gospel. They were full of self-righteous zeal. And Hagar corresponds allegorically to the legalistic Jews of Paul and the apostolic day. Paul says she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is the mother of us all. So Paul is always going to take us back to understand that what's going on in the Abraham narrative has a redemptive historical value to it. God is teaching things in this narrative that on first reading we might not understand, that we might not be able to see. But as we see what God is doing in redemptive history, as we see God unfolding his plan of redemption, God making good on his promise, just as he has already begun to with Isaac, the precursor to the Redeemer, as he has begun to make good on his promise, we see that God is unfolding the conflict between the world and the church, between the flesh and the spirit, between the works of the law and the promises of God. There's an absolute antithesis. Now, you may say, Okay, that's nice. You just gave me a bunch of allegory through the Apostle Paul. You told me we've got two covenants, two mountains. These two women represent two different ways of salvation. What is the cash value for me? The cash value for you is that you and I are always ready to slide into a fleshly legalism mode in our hearts. Maybe not in our thinking, 
but always in our hearts. There's a very important book that's just come out called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, and it, um, it details a very important controversy in church history called the Marrow Controversy. But the essence of what Ferguson is seeking to do in walking modern readers through this historic controversy is to explain that, that there are always two dangers, one of legalism and one of antinomianism. There is always the danger of sliding into a legalistic mindset, trying to work for salvation, and there is always the opposite and yet equal error of saying, I will do what I want to do and live the way I want to do. Both are opposite but equal errors. Both are rejecting the gospel. Both are rejecting the promises of God. Both are rejecting the Redeemer. Both are trying to live life in the flesh. And Ferguson has this very fascinating point about the controversy. And what he says is that in the realm of legalism, it is altogether possible to have an evangelical mind and a legalistic heart. I don't want you to miss this this morning because the cash value for you and for me as we consider the rejection of the gospel by Ishmael is that Ishmael was steeped in fleshly pride and self-righteousness and that believers, according to Paul and Galatians, are ever tempted to be led astray from Christ and the simple promises of God to try to work in some way for your salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that you're sitting there thinking, that's right, I'm working for my salvation. You know that you've fallen into this when you have a hypercritical spirit of others, when you sit around and focus on the sins of others more than your own sin, when you judge others rather than looking within at the log in our own eyes, when we focus on holding others to a standard of holiness that we don't even hold ourselves to, when we feel condemned constantly because we're not doing good enough, that might be an indicator and a symptom that we have an evangelical mind and a legal heart. And so what the Apostle Paul would have us see in Galatians 4, what I think the Lord would have us see here in Genesis 21, is that God wants us to understand that salvation is entirely by promise, entirely by grace, entirely by faith in the coming Redeemer. That is the point of Genesis 21. God has begun to fulfill his promises in sending Isaac. And now here is a tension. Here are two sons. Now, Abraham loves Ishmael. Abraham is grieved when God tells, when God tells him to listen to Sarah and to send away the child of the bondwoman. But something very interesting happens in this chapter as these two sons are juxtaposed. The one is constantly spoken of as Isaac, and the other is spoken of as the boy. Very interesting that Ishmael's never named. If you go through this section in Genesis 21, the son of the flesh is never named. It's as if God is saying that he is so to be forgotten, that he is so to be ignored as of relevance to the fulfillment of the promise and to salvation that he is to be spoken of in the most general term possible. Send away the boy. Send away the boy and his mother. Send away the boy and the slave woman. And that means that the focus is on Isaac. The focus is on what is God doing through Isaac? What is God doing in saying that no, the promise will not be through the boy. It will be through Isaac. Now, 
for us to understand the significance of all of this, we have to also understand that Sarah, who made the huge mistake of telling Abraham to go into Hagar, is now telling Abraham to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the home, not just because she felt like she made a mistake, but notice, because we're told in verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had bore to Abraham laughing. Now, um, you might think it is an overly harsh treatment for God to say that Sarah's right, Hagar and Ishmael need to go, because he left, he made fun. How many of us have not made fun of other people? There's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes I love. It's 721. I might be wrong about that. It says, um, don't take it to heart every time you hear your servant cursing you because you yourself know that you many times have cursed your master. I love that. Don't get, don't get so wounded if somebody makes fun of you because you know you've made fun of other people. And, and it seems like harsh treatment until we come to Galatians 4 and we understand that the language that God is employing in in Genesis 21 is that Ishmael is really mocking in a persecuting way that Isaac is the son of promise. It's not just a general making fun of his little brother. He is despising the promises of God. He is rejecting the grace of God. There is a very real sense that Ishmael, who lives in Abraham's house, that is no, that is no point of small significance. Abraham, who lives, Ishmael, who lives in Abraham's house, who is circumcised and has the covenant sign on him. That would be like him being baptized today. He is a member of a local church in Abraham's family. He he has the promises given to him. He is to be worshiping God with that local congregation. He is to be believing the promises. Um, Ian Duguid makes the point that Ishmael, in a sense, should have come and bowed and worshiped before Isaac. Now, clearly we know that he doesn't mean Isaac is to be worshiped. He is speaking of Isaac as the type of Jesus, that he is the type of the redeemer. He is the precursor. Jesus descends from Isaac, the son of promise. He is the greater son of promise. Let us come bow down and worship him. Ishmael should have come and bowed down before the promises of God and worship God that he was fulfilling the promises of redemption in Isaac, not in himself. And then Paul says that becomes a picture for everyone who hates Christians subsequently. Everyone who hates true believers subsequent to that hates them because they are living in fleshly, self-righteous, legalistic mode. No, it, it never surprises me when I meet somebody whose life is in shambles. They have nothing. Their life is in shambles. They are begging on the street And when I've tried to share the gospel with them are so full of self-righteous pride and everything in me wants to sinfully say, look at yourself, you have nothing. And yet being in a state of destitution and poverty and having your life wrecked by sin does not bring you to a place of seeing your need for Jesus. You can have your life absolutely wrecked by sin. I did for many, 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 many years and it did not bring me to a place of humility and saying, I need a savior. That is only by grace. God, in a sense, through the birth of Isaac, 
is holding out the gospel to Ishmael. He's saying, I am the God who will provide redemption. And Ishmael rejects it. And so the rejection, and by the way, I want to emphasize this this morning, and please, whatever you do, take this point away. It is sadly the case that many that go up, grow up in covenant homes who are taught the scriptures from their earliest years, who worship in churches that are faithful to preaching and teaching the scriptures, who have parents who warn them and discipline them and love them and, and bring them the gospel and teach them about the grace of God. It has been often the case that many, many, many covenant children reject the gospel. In the very home where God has put them, to be nurtured in that gospel. Thankfully, sometimes he brings them to places of repentance later in life, but sometimes, sadly, he doesn't. And they go on hardening their hearts and wanting to live in the world. You know, some of the greatest heretics in church history grew up in Calvinistic homes. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, grew up in a Calvinistic home. It has often been the case that those with the greatest privileges in Christian homes, and that's a warning. That's a warning for us as Parents, that we don't presume on the grace of God for our children. We trust God to bring that grace about in their lives. But it's a warning for children that they don't think, oh, yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church. I'm good. For the life of me, I cannot understand. We've had this happen in this church. I have a friend. This happens to a lot. Someone will come to a church, go through membership classes, join the church, and stop coming. As if. As long as my name is on the roll, I'm good. In fact, that is the most dangerous place in the world to be. I think the account of Isaac and Ishmael teaches us that even within the godliest home, even within the most nurtured, covenantally blessed of homes, that there is always that fearful danger that people presume on the grace of God, that there are those in the home who mock at the gospel and the promises of God, who despise the God of grace, and who are therefore rejected. And Ishmael is rejected. God affirms what Sarah says. Very interesting, isn't it? Abraham got into the conundrum he got into with Hagar by listening to Sarah. And yet, notice this. Sarah comes. She goes to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. But God said to Abraham... Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do it as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I found a very fascinating statement as I was preparing this in which John Calvin was reflecting on how it was that Abraham could bring himself to a place of casting out Hagar and Ishmael. How, how could Abraham do that? He loved Ishmael. Um, remember, he, he didn't want Sarah to deal harshly with Hagar and Ishmael. Um, he's displeased that Sarah is telling him to do this. And this is what Calvin says. Listen to this very carefully. He says, this is the true test of faith and piety. When the faithful are so far compelled to deny themselves that they even resign the very affections of their original nature, which are neither evil nor vicious in themselves, to the will of God. Here's what Calvin's saying. 
There may be affections in our hearts for certain things that are not in and of themselves sinful. Abraham loved Ishmael. That was not in and of itself sinful. Abraham had natural affection for his firstborn son. That was not in and of itself wrong in any way whatsoever. But it is a mark of godliness and of faith that we would be willing to resign, to give up and to turn over even those affections that seem natural to us when God calls us to do so. I was thinking about this this week. Jesus Christ does this to the nth degree when he's in the garden. He sees the cup. He knows that he's going to have to drink it to the full. He knows that that means that he's going to be separated from his father with an eternal separation during that duration of hanging on the cross. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson very helpfully says that um, it's unthinkable that the Son of God would ever not pray that the cup be taken away from him. It's unthinkable that he wouldn't pray it for a sinless, holy Son of God to want eternal separation from his Father would be unthinkable. So when Jesus says, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he is saying, if it's possible that I do not have to have fellowship with you broken, under your wrath on the cross, please, if there's any other way, let it be so. And then he resigns that good and natural affection, and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a lesson there. Abraham obeys the Lord, even as hard as it will be, and we'll see this next week in Abraham having to offer up Isaac, he resigns his will to God's will. He puts away the one in his own home who has rejected the God of grace, who has scoffed at the promise of redemption, who has scoffed at the gospel and, and becomes a paradigm for everyone who scoffs at Jesus Christ and his people throughout all of human history. And then God comes and he cares in a common grace sort of way for Hagar and for Ishmael. There is even here a picture of God's goodness that even those who have rejected him, even those who have a spirit of high-handed rebellion against God, who who hate him, who hate his promises, who hate the only way of salvation in Jesus Christ, even toward them, God manifests common goodness. Isn't that interesting? The Lord hears the voice of Hagar. He hears the voice of the boy. He opens their eyes to see the well of life-giving water that is so close to them there in the wilderness. He promises that by common grace, he's going to multiply Ishmael and make him into a great nation. Uh, Yes, a a manifestation of the seed of the serpent, Satan's kingdom, but God, by common grace, would still, in one very real sense, show his goodness in the here and now, not in a saving way, but in the here and now, to those who hate him. Now, somebody could say, well, what good is that? Why doesn't God save Ishmael? What good is it if he shows common grace goodness? Well, Jesus tells us that we are to be as believers like our Father in heaven, that he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust, that he gives rain to the godly and the ungodly, and he uses that as a lesson for believers, that we would understand that we are to be compassionate, even to those that hate us. I mean, only Christianity, by the way, teaches that you're to bless those that persecute you, pray for those who spitefully use you, and do good to those that hate you. The world says the complete opposite, and God is teaching even in his care of Ishmael who has rejected him with those common grace blessings that he is a merciful God who hears when men call to him.
And then notice, secondly, the reception. We have the second account. It doesn't seem to fit together. In fact, if anything seems out of place in the Abraham narrative, it is this final section of chapter 21. If anything seems out of place, we're left, and, and as I came to this sermon, I wrestled with what in the world is going on with Abimelech? What in the world is God teaching us? I know that this has to have some sort of redemptive historical purpose. It has to have some spiritual significance to us because God breathed it out in the scriptures for us, for our spiritual benefit in Jesus Christ. And as I came to this, I thought, I have no idea what is going on. And then I realized, I realized that what God is doing is he is encouraging Abraham, who is probably very downcast who is downcast because he has had to give up his firstborn son, who is probably discouraged and grieved to the utmost because of what he's just had to do. And God is coming to him and reminding him, Abraham, I said that I would make you a blessing to the nations, and I'm going to again show you how that's going to happen with you being a blessing to Abimelech, of whom I just delivered you, to whom you just lied about your wife, to whom I gave you great possessions when I brought you out from Gerar and from the land of Philistia, and I'm going to have him now come to you and show you that the nations are going to receive blessing from you because I have promised that you will be a blessing. It is the reception of grace. We have the rejection of grace in Ishmael. We have the reception of grace in Abimelech. Now, there's a lot in the account of Abimelech I, don't, I can't make sense of. I'm not sure what significance the seven ewe lambs have. I know fundamentally that Abraham is coming and in one sense is acting defensive with this great king. He is essentially complaining about the water bill. He's going and he's saying, listen, I had a well. It stopped up. Your people did it. Fix it. But notice that before Abraham is acting defensively in his initial response, it is Abimelech and the commander of his army who come to Abraham. Notice God brings them. Verse 22, he brings them to Abraham. And, and notice what Abimelech says, God is with you in all that you do. Now, this is a massively important point for us to get. One of the big missteps of Abraham back in chapter 20 when he lied about Sarah being his, his sister again to Abimelech and God coming and plaguing Abimelech's house and making his wives and the women in his house barren and all the other ways that God dealt with them. One of the big missteps and perhaps the biggest misstep is that Abraham missed out on an opportunity to bear witness of God's saving grace in the promises that God gave to him. There is... There is in the Abraham narrative, and I, I never saw this before this past year, there is a, a preeminent emphasis on Abraham bearing witness to all of his family members, everyone in the house, and then everyone in the world outside, wherever he goes, with whomever he is rubbing shoulders, his job is to bear witness and to propagate the gospel. It is one and the same with your call and my call. You know, Abraham is, at the end of this chapter, he is an example of a believer who is not afraid to be engaged out with 
the world, even with political leaders, and yet to do so for the benefit of them, not forgetting that he belongs to God, not falling into sinful practices, but God is teaching Abraham that the gospel is for the nations. Now, you may say, wow, that's a lot. I'm not sure that's in the end of this chapter. I think you're kind of reading into this too much. Notice the last verse of chapter 21. Notice this. Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this, you know that your greatest enemy is the Philistines. Throughout Israel's kingdom period, your great enemy is the Philistines. Bringing down Goliath did not bring down the Philistines. When Samson brought down the Temple of Dagon on the 400 Philistine leaders, it did not put an end to the greatest enemy that Israel ever faced. They were the epitome of Satan's kingdom. And here you have Abraham sojourning, the father of the faith, in the land of the Philistines. And the king of the Philistines is saying to him, I see that God is with you in all that you do. You know, many commentators believe that the way that Abimelech acts in chapter 20 and 21 proved that he was, in the words of Luther, saintly. He was a believer. Abimelech had probably heard something of the covenant promises in his interaction with Abraham, and he saw God's blessing on Abraham, and he saw how God protected Abraham even when he did wrong. And Abimelech, again, acts more uprightly than Abraham. In chapter 20, remember, Abraham lies and deceives and blames, and Abimelech is upright. He says, I didn't do anything. I didn't know that she was your wife. I, I wouldn't have done this. I know that that's wrong. Why would you have lied to me? Abimelech, at every step, is acting upright. Notice here in chapter 21 that Abimelech, Abimelech is acting upright again. Abraham comes and meets with him as he comes to meet Abraham. And notice that he comes in peace. He says, swear to me here that by God, you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. He is essentially saying, let's dwell together in peace. You are blessed by God. I want to know the peace and the blessing of God that rests on you for myself and my home. And notice what Abraham does. Abraham swears, but then he reproves Abimelech. He, he says, why did you cut off our water? Your servant did that. Notice what Abimelech says in verse 26. I do not know who has done this thing to you. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. I love this. You know, maybe I just wrote in our monthly an article for you all called Not So Great Expectations um, and how unspoken and unrealistic expectations destroy every relationship in the home and the church. And, and what's happening here essentially with Abraham is Abraham is assuming that he can just be brazen with Abimelech. Well, look, why'd you do this? And, and Abimelech's like, listen, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. You never told me, and I don't know who did this. I'm not, I'm not sure about any of this. Abraham is not acting nearly as uprightly as Abimelech. Nevertheless, nevertheless, notice how God brings this to this peaceful place of them covenanting together. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. Abraham then set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. He gave them to Abimelech as a gift. He said to Abimelech, listen, let these lambs be a gift that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. 
I, he's not bribing Abimelech. He is essentially saying, I will be good to you, be good to me. Now, there's a lesson here for us. Um, John Calvin, in the preface to his, I believe it's um, Epistle to Galatians, has a letter to the king of France. And, and if you lived in those days, you know, we're talking about changing culture and we're talking about hostility in America, new hostility toward Christians. You would not have wanted to live as a Christian at the time of the Reformation. You would not have wanted to live through most of New Testament church history as a believer under any regime or any king. Christians were terribly persecuted. And Calvin wrote the king of France, who was not a Christian and who was not amiable to Christians. And Calvin essentially says to the king of France, let us live and we will do you good. Let us live and we will do you good. Abraham is saying to Abimelech, let's live at peace together. Acknowledge that this well is the well that I have dug. I will give you this gift. We will do you good. Let's live together in peace. They make a covenant. Abraham names that place Beersheba. That's going to become significant later on in Old Testament history. It's going to become the boundary of Israel in the inheritance. It's going to be the the final stopping place in the land of inheritance. And essentially what we get from this chapter is that while Ishmael has rejected the grace of God, while those within Abraham's own house have rejected the gospel, those in the world are being prepared to be the recipients of the gospel. God is already saying that there would be Gentiles who would receive the gospel. You know, I noted already, I want to note this again, that God said he would make a great nation of Ishmael. The Arabs would come from Ishmael, 12 princes. It's a, it's a counterfeit of Israel with the 12 tribes. It's a counterfeit kingdom. It's, it's representative of Satan's kingdom. And the Philistines are representative of Satan's kingdom in the entire Old Testament. But before any of the animosity, before any of the hostility, God is saying, my plan is to redeem a people and I'm going to use my people to take the gospel to the world around them so that men and women will believe. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost and the gospel is going forth and he is heralding what Jesus has done and he's proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation and redemption of the nations, we are told that those from Mesopotamia and those from uh, Syria and those Arab-speaking nations and a people from every nation of the world were gathered together hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages and believing the gospel. Everything that's going on here at the end of Genesis 21 is preparing us for that. Now, here's what that means for you. Chances are good everybody in here predominantly is a Gentile by nature. Um, That means we, like Abimelech, have become heirs of God's promises in Abraham by grace. That's a huge point. It is only by God's engrafting grace into the covenant promises that he gave to Israel about Jesus that we are redeemed. We have become recipients that we were not in the house. We have been brought in and grafted in. And in the Great Commission and in the entirety of the book of Acts and in the entirety of the New Testament, 
There is one overarching thing that God is always calling his people to do in the world, wherever they are. They are to be salt and light. They are to exalt Jesus Christ. They are to call men to come to Jesus. You know, I'm going to say this this morning because I know all of us fail in many ways. If we are not zealous about evangelism, about seeing God's kingdom advance, about seeing those around us come to know him, even about seeing the the most ruthless and heartless and wicked around us come to know Jesus, then we have missed the entire point of why God has redeemed us and left us in this world. It's not to have better homes, a better retirement, better health, better vacations, or any of that. I'm going to say that as definitively as I can. The only reason God didn't save you and take you immediately to glory is that you would be a witness to the world around you and that you would raise those in your home to know Jesus Christ. That's it. There's a book I've told you about. I'm going to close with this. There's a book I've told you about in the past. It's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. There are three things you're called to do. You're called to worship weekly together with God's people. You're called to serve one another and to care deeply for one another, and you're called to bear witness to the gospel. And there's only one thing you can't do in heaven. When Christ comes, it'll be too late. There will be no more calls. There will be no more extension of opportunities for repentance. There will be no more opportunity to reject the gospel. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And that means we, like Abraham, are to be zealous to be out interacting with those around us that do not know Jesus in order to be a blessing to those around us so that they might know the same grace that we've received. Now, I want to say this as we close this morning. If you have rejected Jesus Christ, if you are like Ishmael scoffing and, and, and in your heart deriding these things, I am begging you, I am begging you to think about the, the fact that there is one way of salvation There's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. He is the the greater Isaac. There is only one means of salvation. It is through the life and the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the intercession of Jesus Christ. And that means that we are to trust him. We are to flee to him. It doesn't matter if you've rejected him in the past. Flee to him today. Flee to him now with all of your sin, with all of your previous mocking, with all of your disdaining, flee to Jesus Christ. If you're in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to labor diligently to make it your goal to be a blessing, to take the gospel out, to live peaceably with all men so that the grace of God might extend to those around you. That is, that's the call of Genesis 21. Let him who has ears to hear... Let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have many times lost sight of that call to nurture those within our homes, and we have lost sight of that call to be a light and a blessing to those outside of your church in the world that you might call to your son for redemption. And we pray that you would give us grace to see what you were doing in Abraham's life and that while Ishmael rejected the gospel and was banished from the covenant home and Abimelech, by your grace, was being taught what a bountiful and good and peaceful God you are, we pray, our Father, that you would teach us 
to have a greater zeal for the lost, that you would give us a greater zeal for the Great Commission, that you would give us a greater sense of what you've done in us and what you wish to do through us. And so, Father, we pray that you would renew our minds and hearts this morning. We pray that you would uh, encourage us in the precious truths of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.